We began this series about the table, about the extravagance of the table, because in my heart, one of the things I've seen in the transition that has happened during the pandemic uh, is so much of, a, of our lives have been built around a table, and it's often a small table. It's at home. Uh, you might have done your work at your dining table. If you were working remotely, you might have eaten a lot more at that dining table than out somewhere else. And this table has always been to me a central part of what it means to be people of faith, coming to this table. And then I began to realize that all of your tables, wherever they are, in whatever shape they take, uh, are just as sacred as this table is. And that as we gather around it with people that we love or even by ourselves, the presence of God is there with us. And it's an extravagant presence. This week has been a little bit of a busy week in Linda's and my life, Linda, my wife, and I. Um, we, we had to delay going to, the Indigo Girls finally showed up, you know, they were, we were supposed to see them, you know, she had bought the tickets two years ago, we were supposed to go see them last fall, and then they delayed to the spring, and then the pandemic was still a year, so we couldn't go in the spring, and so we went on Wednesday night. Then on Thursday, we left to go to Richmond because we were celebrating the wedding of a young woman I met because she was my daughter's sorority sister. And Madeline came and stayed with us many times over the four years that Hannah and she were in school. And she had asked me to do the wedding. Uh, she had asked me to do the wedding before there was someone to get married to. She had said, hey, James, when I get married, I want you to, when you, and I'm like, okay, when you get married, if, you know, you don't ever say to anyone, if you get married, uh, but that's true, if you get married. When you get married, if you get married, I'd be glad to do it. So last year we did a small ceremony, but she wanted to have a celebration where all of her friends could come, and so we went to Richmond and we spent the night. Well, on Thursday night we rehearsed, and then we went to the rehearsal dinner, because that's uh, a tradition. Now, one of the dangers of being a pastor is you get stereotyped. And for most of the weddings I've ever done, I get put at the safe table with older people who apparently will say safe things to the clergy person and not offend me, uh, you know, uh, or whatever. I don't know. It, stereotypically, that's where I'm put at weddings, uh, at the rehearsal dinner. And this year, it was not that way at all. Madeline said, and she told me this uh, on Friday night after the wedding. We were at the, uh, we were at the uh, reception, and as we were getting ready to leave, we were telling her how much we had appreciated being seated at the table with such an eclectic group of people at the rehearsal dinner. And she said to us, I picked that table for you and Linda because I was sure you would love being at the table with those folks. In her extravagance, Madeline made a space for Linda and I to sit with all these young adults, not at the table, just with family, not that I don't love their family, and we, they, we've become a part of their family, it feels like, now, but we sat with all these young adults, and we learned about the intricacies and joys 
of ranch dressing, how important ranch dressing is, how viscous it needs to be. You should make a really good ranch dressing is apparently you take the ranch dressing powder, mix it with Duke's mayonnaise and a certain amount uh, to taste of 2% uh, milk. Uh, I guess unless you're lactose intolerant, then it's not a good mix. But you mix that up to the right viscosity and you can use that apparently with everything. It makes any meal better. At least that was what we were told at this table. But the celebration and extravagance of picking a table, not because they had to feed us because we were the pastor and uh, the pastor's wife, but because they thought we would like being at the table with those folks. That Madeline went out of the way to put us there because of that. Now that's an extravagant move. That's an extravagant move. And you see, it's a gateway when we catch a glimpse of those realities. It's a gateway into seeing just how extravagant God is with us all the time. Now the difference is in today's story, the extravagance is in response to the extravagance. Extravagance breeds extravagance. I believe that. We're gonna read a story today from the Gospel of Luke. The same story, close to the same story exists in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but I am fond of the Luke story for a reason I'll tell you once we get there. So I'm looking at Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Now, this is unusual in itself that the Pharisees would invite Jesus to the house, but this happened. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, might as well say, and who isn't, in any case, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he said, reply, he said, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, the, the creditor canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he had canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet from the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven 
loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, Luke doesn't make a big deal of it, Matthew and Mark do, that the ointment in an alabaster jar would have been extremely expensive. It was an extravagant gesture. It was beyond extravagant. Um, but even beyond the extravagance of it is the inappropriateness of everything that happens here in first century society. An unnamed woman who apparently was a sinner, apparently people in town knew her. Uh, we can only guess what her sins were. Um, the first century, the big ones were all related to sexuality, so we'll probably assume that that's what uh, the Pharisees were caught up in, in their rules. Um, you know, women who weren't related to you didn't touch you. In the first century, that was just not an okay thing, and men didn't touch women that weren't related to them. Uh, and so here is a woman who has come in, is touching Jesus, in a very intimate way. On his feet, she's washing them with her tears, she's drying them with her hair, and then putting this ointment on his feet. This is like scandalous. Scandalous. And yet, Jesus appreciates her extravagance. Now, in order to help the Pharisee understand what this was all about, he uses a, an indebtedness kind of thing because the average one of us knows what it is to owe somebody something. If I owe you 15 bucks and you come and want to collect to me, come from me, I can probably come up with 15 bucks. Maybe. I don't know. I don't carry a lot of cash, but if you take credit cards, I could probably give you 15. Um, but if, you owe, if I owe you $5,000, or $50,000, or $500,000, and you come up to me and say, hey, I want that right now. I'm not sure I could liquidate even enough things to give you $500,000. Certainly not $5 million. And so Jesus uses a language that the Pharisee's going to understand. The Pharisee's going to understand about debt and indebtedness, uh, starting from the place of deficit. You know, because the, the Pharisee believed in the deficit. Uh, he believed so much that we were in deficit with God that he had 613 rules based on the Ten Commandments that he needed to follow every single day. And because he believed he didn't need to be forgiven very much, he didn't love very much either. He didn't see himself as receiving much of a gift. In fact, he saw himself as deserving of God's love. That God's love for him was just a natural thing. Of course God loves me. I do all the good stuff. I wash my hands three times a day up to the elbows and let the water drip off. I say nice things to people when I pass them on the street. I even let other cars in at least once a month in front of me when I'm driving on the road. I've got it all together. Of course God loves me. I am totally, totally lovable. Totally lovable. But that chick over there, and you can almost hear that 
disparaging word roll off the Pharisee's tongue is so undeserving. And yet she's touching Jesus. What is she even doing in my house? What is she even doing in my house? Well, she has received the gift of love. And all she wants to do is give it back. Now, which one of you measures love? You know, I'm told, now jewelers measure love. They've convinced us that the only way we can show love to someone we're going to marry is if we spend a third of our annual salary to buy an engagement ring. That's about jewelers. That's not about love. That's about jewelers. They want a third of your annual salary so they can keep in business. It has nothing to do with how much you love somebody, if you buy them a big diamond or no diamond at all. The rings are symbols. Don't even have them, and it's okay. The bottom line is you don't measure. You don't, I, I don't measure my love. It was a question, I, there was no way to answer it for my children. We had two. We have two. And they don't ask this question anymore because they don't like the answer I give. But when they were little, one would tell me that I loved the other more than them. You love Hannah more than you love me, Dad. You let her do this. She's three years older than you. Of course she can drive and you can't. You're 13. You may not drive the car. She's 16. Yes, she's learning to drive the car. I do not love Hannah more than you. Hannah was always convinced we let Josh off easier than her. And we probably did, because he was the second child. First child, rules, 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 rules. Second child, oh, whatever. You know, uh, in any case, he was convinced we loved her more. She was convinced we loved him more. And there's just no measuring love. How do you tell somebody how much you love them? We try with our kids to the moon and back. And that's measurable. But if you're really honest, you can't measure how much you love somebody else. You can't measure how much you love your children, how much you'd give, how much you would be willing to give. You would give even your life. What is probably most valuable to you because it's extravagant. Because love doesn't ask how much. If you only loved me, you would. I do love you. And I would. But we're constantly trying to figure out. See, what I love about the word extravagance is there's no measure. There's no measure. There is no measure in extravagance. I don't know that Madeline thought it was an extravagant gesture to put Linda and myself at that table, table number two, with these young adults. But when she told me that she picked them to put us there because she thought we would like meeting them and they would like hanging out with us, then we knew. Then we knew what an extravagant gesture it was. At the wedding, we sat at table number two again. There's something about the number two. Only this time, we sat 
with all of the, uh, the father of the bride's uh, close family, his sisters that he hadn't seen in years, and their significant uh, others, and nieces and cousins. And we got to be regaled by stories of Dave, Madeline's dad. And once again, we were picked to be there in an extravagant way. You see, extravagance doesn't measure. Well, stereotypically, James and Linda should be put at a table where they will not be offended by anything anyone says. Well, if you can be at any place in the world these days where nobody offends you, then you're doing pretty good. But out of love, she put us in that place. Out of love, this woman who doesn't even get a name. We get to know the Pharisee, the measurer by the rules. We get to know his name, Simon the Pharisee. And we don't get to know the woman who doesn't measure how much she loves Jesus, just pours out her tears and uses her hair and gives all that she has in an extravagant gesture to say, I love you and there is no measure. There is no measure. And you know why? It's in response to the way God loves you. And you. And me. There is no measure. By neuroscience, at least Richard tells me, uh, Richard Rohr tells me, by neuroscience, he has a neuroscientist friend who said to him, we can't put our minds around infinite. We can't. We don't know how to do infinite. I can do finite. Why do you think God came in the person of Jesus? Why Christ was in a person? Because we can handle the finite. We can't, and we, can, we didn't handle that very well. Can we be honest? We didn't handle the whole finite love of God very well at all. But we can handle the finite. We, our minds just can't get around. Endless. Endless. But that's how much love God has for you. It is endless. If we were really going to serve this table, it would be a waste. But no matter how many people were going to be here, there would be bread over all of it, everywhere. It would be overflowing over there. It would be all across the floor. You wouldn't even want to eat it because it's on the floor and it's dirty. It would be everywhere because the extravagance of God's love can't be contained in a loaf and a cup. But if I can learn to see the love of God symbolized in that loaf and in that cup, if I can see Christ there, maybe I'd come to see the extravagance of Christ everywhere from the person who holds the door for me. For the person who chooses to seat me at the table with the cool kids. Not that everybody at the wedding wasn't a cool kid, but who chose to seat us with folks because it would be our preference and theirs to get to know each other. This is the extravagance of God. You can't measure how much God loves you. You can't measure how much God loves the world or the universe, because it's infinite. 
A catchphrase that you get tired of, some of you probably. I don't get tired of saying it to you, though. You, each one of you, is infinitely precious. Infinitely precious. As finite as you are, to God, you are infinitely precious. And you are unconditionally loved. You don't start off at a deficit. God doesn't say, I'm going to love you if. God loves you already, unconditionally, and invites you to be a part of this connection of unconditional love. Because there is only one instance of you ever in all of eternity. There's only one you. And God made you to hold the place that you hold because he unconditionally loves you and you are infinitely precious in that spot. And God invites you to live out of that infinite preciousness. If you realized how precious you were, how would you treat everybody else? Would you spend all your time patting yourself on the back of, I'm precious, look at me, I'm precious. Oh boy, am I precious. I am amazingly precious. Or would you realize, wow, I'm precious, but so is everyone else in this room and on the internet with us. I wanna, I wanna treat everyone with that kind of respect and dignity that is due to something that's infinitely precious. I wanna love the things God loves and I wanna love them extravagantly. This table is extravagance. God poured out everything for love for you everything. I'm going to give it all because I love you. And God does it every single day. God just keeps pouring out and invites us to do the same. And the woman answered the call. She poured out extravagantly of herself on Jesus' feet, the lowest part of his body in a societally unacceptable way because she wasn't worried about those things. Conventions didn't matter, rules didn't matter. Love was all that mattered. Love is all that matters. Anything else is icing. And how do you ice love? There's nothing better. And God's love for you is extravagant. And that's the table.